Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Welcome into the Autzen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Pramer, Scopel on the show. And it's Monday. It's the end of March. And unfortunately, for both the Oregon and the men's women's basketball programs, uh, they are out of the NCAA tournament. The women, they fall Sunday afternoon in the Sweet 16 to two-seed Louisville. 60 to 42. The men in the evening on Sunday fall to six seed USC 82 68. And that ends both seasons for the Oregon Ducks on the hardwood. Now we're going to talk a little bit about both games. We'll also discuss kind of the senior careers and what we expect with those players and the options that they have to return for another season. And then we'll also dive into kind of what an off season could look like for each side of the program. Uh, for the men, Eric, against the USC Trojans, uh, this was a game that really was in Oregon's favor for the first 10 or so minutes of this game. They led for eight minutes um, in the first half. They had a lead at one point that was five. They, they led 5 nothing early on. Um, they got it back to five a couple other times. And there was a point where Oregon was shooting 50% from the field in the first nine minutes. And USC went zone. And Oregon, which is highly unusual, did not have a counter to a counter move. And, and that's the game was lost in the, in the last 11 minutes of the first half because the Ducks proceeded to shoot three of 17 from the field. The Trojans went on like a 24 to five run or something of that nature and went into halftime uh, leading this game by 15 points. And from there it was over. I mean, Oregon outscored USC by one in the second half. But the lead grew to 21 early on in the second half. Uh, and I guess for the second time, Eric, it wasn't the Mobley brothers that beat Oregon. I mean, Evan Mobley was good. He had 10 points on four of six shooting. He had eight rebounds and six assists. I mean, he was, he was fantastic. But they didn't win this game because of what Evan Mobley did. He, I mean, he had six assists, which was good. His rebounding on defense was good. But – it was the play of some uh, you know uncharacteristic guys. Tajidi again goes off for the 
for the Trojans. He has 20 points on 7-11 shooting, 3 of 6 on threes. And then senior forward Isaiah White had a career game, 8 of 10, 22 points. And he made more threes in that Sweet 16 game than he's ever made in his career uh, in a single game with four. Uh, this is a guy that made, I think, 23s all year going into the Sweet 16 game. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, at both games, look, USC was the better team, but both games, career performances from role players, uh, and Oregon couldn't get anything in both games from, from their, you know, outside of their two star players. Yeah, I think the thing that really stood out in this one was just if Oregon was going to win this game, it had to hit three point shots and it was not, (laughs) the Ducks just weren't going to win if USC outshot them and USC outshot them and did so pretty significantly. Oregon was five for 21 from the three USC was 10 for 17. Um, You know, that's a, that's a 15 point swing right there. This game was decided by 14 points. I I mean, obviously there's a lot more to it than just the three point shooting, but I think that part was really significant. And there were times in this game, especially I thought in the second half, where Oregon mounted a little bit of a run and it was a couple three point shots that kind of killed it. Um, you know, we'll probably run through the whole game here, but Oregon gets it down to nine after they're down 20 with about four to play. And Tajidi hits, I would say the biggest shot of the game, a three point shot to put it back up 12. And from there, the, the, the kind of any hopes of coming back is killed. And the yeah. thing that was frustrated during that point was that Oregon had a couple chances down nine forced turnovers to, to, to try to cut it to seven or to six. Um, and couldn't come up with it. And those were moments where it, I don't know if I ever felt like Oregon was going to win when they cut it to nine, but it was kind of like, okay, here they go. Maybe they're going to make this really interesting over the last couple of minutes. But USC, of course, hits the threes. And I think Isaiah White's threes, you mentioned it, like those were daggers and really significant early on. This is like a, a role player. This is, you know, somebody that is not traditionally leading your team and scoring and hitting eight of 10 from the field, four or five from three. Um, and for him to hit those shots, and a couple of them are high degree of difficulty with defenders in his face, that made things really difficult. And the other thing, so so defensively, there's that part, and offensively, the lack of three-point shooting. I just think, and you mentioned it there, I, I posted this tweet after the game, Duarte and Amarui scored 49 combined points, 17 for 36 from the field, 4 for 11 from 3, 11 for 11 from the free throw line. Richardson, Figueroa, Williams scored 11 points. Five for 27 from the field, one for 10 from three, didn't shoot any foul shots. Uh, to me, they needed one of those guys, probably Richardson, because he's, I would say, their, their third best offensive player. One of those guys needed to step up, and they didn't. And if it was just Richardson hitting six of his eight shots, including a couple of threes, or Figueroa hitting, you know, eight out of 12 shots and a couple of threes, this game probably goes differently. But the, both those players just had really poor performances at really inopportune times. And it's, it's frustrating, especially after how well they had played um, collectively at times this season to really have it be, once again, a two-player game. And the two players that had their big nights are the players that are going pro or that will be graduating in Amarui and Duarte. And I know we'll talk more about what Oregon can be next year, but I think it was kind of telling that the Stars rose to the challenge and, and a couple of the guys that had been really good recently just didn't just didn't have good enough games for, for Oregon to compete here. And USC's length will be a challenge for Gonzaga. <laughs> I went to Gonzaga, so there was a little bit of me internally hoping this would be an Oregon-Gonzaga Elite Eight game. I picked that in the uh, the bracket, but um, unfortunately, 
unfortunately, we're not going to get that. And I think USC will give Gonzaga, who might be the best team in the country, most people think they are, a heck of a game on Tuesday. Um, that's a really challenging style to face, especially when, hey, when USC's hitting all those threes and how long they are defensively, I, I don't know if there's a lot of teams in the country that can, can win against that. And Oregon certainly wasn't one of them on Monday night or yeah, Sunday night. USC is like a nine-point underdog to Gonzaga, and I would hammer USC on that one. Um, I, I think this is going to be a game, and if you're rooting for the Pac-12 to do well, um, I, it's going to be a weird deal for Duck fan because they don't like USC in general. But I also think that Oregon doesn't like, you know, most Oregon fans don't like Gonzaga either for whatever reason. Um, and so it'll be a weird dynamic. I think you want USC to win this if you're a Duck fan because you want your conference to do well. You don't want the, the – I, I'm saying this in air quotes because they're not, but you don't want the mid-major program in your region to get back to the Final Four and beat a Pac-12 school to get there. I realize Gonzaga is not a mid-major. They are a high major playing in a small pond. Um, they are legit. They are the best team in the country. But – from a Pac-12 standpoint, you probably want USC to get there. And if you're USC, you like what history tells you. Uh, in the previous six NCAA tournaments that Oregon has played in under Dana Altman, the team that's knocked out the Ducks, they've made the Final Four, all of them. All of them have made the Final Four, all six. And three of those six have gone on to win the national title. So if you're Oregon, you're like, hey, Let's hope this trend continues because that means we truly got beat by one of the four best or the best team in the country. And if for USC and the rest of the conference, you're hoping, boy, let's hope that holds true because that means they beat Gonzaga to get to that final four. Um, you touched on it. Amarui and Duarte, they close out their Oregon careers in fashion. I mean, it was like, hey, captain's going down with the ship. We're going to give everything we've got. Uh, and this is what sucks about the tournament is because you get seniors like Amarui who's realizing his college career is over and he gave everything he had. He's crying on the sidelines in the last couple minutes of the game. TV keeps showing him doing it. He goes up to the podium post game and he's fighting back tears. Uh, and he confirmed after Dan Altman said it, that this was his last uh, game at Oregon. Uh, he will go on. He will gra He's graduated already. He's a fifth year senior. He, even though the NCAA has the option for players to come back, I just don't think there's a lot to gain by him coming back to Oregon. And he's confirmed he's, he's going to get ready for the next level is what he said. Altman also said that Chris Duarte is moving on. And that's another one that makes a ton of sense. Duarte is a, a first round draft pick, uh, a guy that had a terrific NCAA tournament uh, and his only NCAA tournament because of COVID wiping out last year's. And I, I really think if Duarte had the opportunity to play in the tournament last year, he would have done well and he would have been viewed as a first team All-American coming into this season and, and probably would have ended up being a first team All-American instead of a third team All-American uh, by most outlets because of what he would have done in last year's NCAA tournament and to build up the attention this year. But nonetheless, he's off. He's, he's going to go to the NBA. I think he'll have a very good career there. Um, he'll probably be Oregon's second straight first round draft pick. Uh, his only knock, and I think that's the only thing that's going to maybe prevent him from getting into that first round, is how concerned our team's going to be the fact that he'll be 24 um, by the time the NBA season starts. He's going to be a little bit older than most uh, NBA players. I mean, just from 
a perspective here. I'm pretty sure. So I, okay. We know that, that uh, Chris Duarte will be 24 by the time the 2021, 2022 NBA season starts. He is a full year older than Boston Celtic all-star Jason Tatum. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, and, and Tatum will be playing in his fifth NBA season next year. Uh, that will, that explains why some teams will have some hesitancy in drafting Duarte is how much better will he get? I still think a, a playoff team will, will pick him in the first round and they'll get a guy that will give Oregon, you know, that'll give him six, seven, eight years of really good basketball and you'll get high value from it. What happens with the other seniors on the roster, LJ Figueroa, Amari Hardy. Um, I think all, well, I know Altman's, I asked Altman post game, how does he handle this? Because it's an unusual year where in a normal year, seniors walk off the court knowing their career is done. This year, seniors have that option to come back. He said the team's going to get away for a couple weeks. He, he mentioned how this has been a grueling season. It's not been fun for the most part. Uh, all the camaraderie off the court that t- teams go through and, and get to experience was not there. College experience was not there. And then on top of that, he mentioned how they haven't seen their families in a very long time, basically since Christmas. And for some, it's been longer than that. And he's giving the team because the spring quarter is done all through internet uh, and remote learning. He's telling his players they all need to go home and spend time with their families and then they'll reconvene in a couple of weeks back in Eugene. It sounds like that's when Altman will have discussions with everyone on his roster, but also in particular, LJ Figueroa and Amari Hardy. Um, I think the expectation though, is that those two guys are, have also played their last games at Oregon. Uh, I, I would be pretty surprised, Eric, if, either of those guys came back to play at Oregon as of, as of now. Um, I think you could make arguments for why they, they could benefit from another year of college basketball at Oregon. I also think you could make arguments of, of why their time is up. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it, if they choose to, to go, you know, to go and, and pursue professional basketball or, you know, their, their time at Oregon is over. I think it makes sense. I think it, it's understandable and it shouldn't be viewed in a negative manner. The question then becomes, does Oregon see any other transfers? There's almost a thousand guys in the portal right now. Um, and I think at this point last year, excuse me, there's almost 1200 guys in the portal. Jesus. At, at this point last year, there was like 900 and the portal hit um, 1200, I think in, in, in August of 2020. We, we could see 2,000 guys make at one point make the portal. Um, it, it's If you're an Oregon fan, I don't know who's going to leave. I, I, you know, I, I think I have some, some guesses, some educated guesses on who could leave, but I don't know for certain. And, you know, I'm not hearing anything in particular. Oh, yeah, this guy's definitely leaving, and you know, now the season's over. But if you're an Oregon fan, get ready. So, there's going to be one. There might be two guys that end up leaving every team in the country. I mean, Colorado, just the day that we're recording this podcast, Colorado made this, made the NCAA tournament. They made the Pac-12 champ, tournament championship game. 
They were ranked at the end of the year. They won a game in the NCAA tournament. They almost made it to the Sweet 16. And they have a senior starter. Or excuse me, they have a junior starter. And they have a grad transfer senior that was going to start this year. Both enter the portal at the end of the year. So you're having good teams ha- who make runs in the tournament see players leave, who were, who were key guys for that team. It's going to happen. So don't get up in arms when Oregon has a guy or two guys enter the portal because every team is dealing with it. Whether you win or whether you lose, there's an insane amount of guys in the portal. I do feel confident that Will Richardson's back. I do feel confident that Eric Williams is back. I feel very confident that Enfale Dante, Chandler Lawson, and Frank Kepnog will all be back next season. I think the what reality Oregon's roster looks like next year. Are they good enough to be a Sweet 16 team? I think so, knowing who they have coming in. Yeah, I think. Well, I was just going to say, I think the reality of any transfers out is that the replacement players, in terms of who they have transferring in, will probably be a, a victory. Um, you look at the the history of players Oregon brings in from the transfer market. You look at this last two years because these players are currently were currently big players in this year's team. They were all double figure scorers at their previous stops. They were all all conference caliber players at their previous stops. Anybody leaving Oregon after this season, primary is probably going to be somebody who's a bench player who probably didn't play very much, um, who's going to be looking to go down a level. I, I would imagine, and who knows? Maybe I, maybe I'm wrong, and, and maybe we'll, we'll be surprised, and someone's name will pop up that we don't expect. I just don't see that happening. And I think the reality is, if whoever they do add through the portal um, will probably be somebody of similar caliber that I just mentioned, somebody that was a 12 to 20 point per game scorer at another school, probably a smaller school who's looking to gain a little bit more exposure to play for, you know, a deep run in the tournament as Dan Altman has made it very clear. He's capable of leading these last five or six years. Um, I posted the stat on social media of just like Oregon's NCAA tournament success since that for, you know, since that um, elite eight run in 2015, 16 is, is significantly better than schools like Duke and Kentucky have had during the same period. I mean, Oregon's had a ton of success. And I think Dan Altman can absolutely sell that. Um, the Pac-12 should be selling the heck out of the fact that their conference played like this in the tournament right. this year. Um, Oregon will go add some quality players if they do have some spots open, and I kind of even expect if they don't, they will. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong in this, Matt, but I think the scholarship math allows Oregon to add at least one or two players, even if they don't lose a player to transfer. Um, and I, I think you're going to expect that they will. And, and I think the other thing that gets kind of interesting is like, there are some pretty talented young players who just didn't play on this last year's team at all because Oregon and Dana Altman really went to like a fan. I mean, kind of a five-man rotation, sort of six or seven if you want to include Hardy or, or Lawson, and I guess eight if you want to include Kepnog towards the end of the season. Um, there are, I mean, Aaron Estrada is a highly regarded player. Yep. I think he was like the freshman of the year in his conference before he transferred. Um, Jalen Terry certainly had some moments there. Um, you know, I, I think both of those guys could, could take their games up a level and, and be quality players that we just, you know, quality pieces that they really just weren't this last year. What about a, a guy like Luke war? I would think that would be one of the guys who might look to transfer just based on playing time, but the potential and the upside there is pretty, pretty clear. Um, if he does stick it, stick it out. So um, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. I think, you know, the, the thing that, you know, I'm reading and seeing is, is how, and I think John Canzano had a, a good column, by the way, in the Oregonian yesterday, just about, Oregon needing to transition and, and get some more size. Like, oh, that's, that's coming. 
that's not a problem. I mean, Oregon's going to have a massive, this, the, the, the stylistically, the change from this year's team to next year's team is, should be quite significant. I mean, you're looking at a team that they might even go two bigs to start. Start Nate Biddle at power forward and then Infali Dante or Frank Keptong at center and go basically a, you know, a seven-footer or close to a seven-footer next to another seven-footer. Um, and, you know, small forward and the rest of the backcourt will probably be somewhat similar to what we've seen this year, but it's not going to look that similar to last year, Matt. And so, like, if you are thinking hypothetically here, I know you have on DuckTerritor.com a VIP story, so I'm not going to ask you to spoil all your goodies, but, like, what kind of a type of player do you envision Oregon trying to find in the transfer portal? We should note um, it's not just Biddle coming in. They also have Jonathan Lawson, younger brother of Chandler, Chandler Lawson, and I believe – is, uh, is Johnson coming back from his morning yeah. mission next year? Yeah, okay. so Isaac Johnson was a top 75 recruit in the 2018 class, and yeah. he immediately took a two-year LDS mission and was expected to join the team in 2021, and that's what he's doing. So Oregon's roster will have four guys on it that are – six foot 11 or taller. Um, one of the, or two of those guys being Isaac Johnson and Nate Biddle, two newcomers to the team who have the ability to shoot threes, block shots and run the floor. Um, and will draw a ton of comparisons to Chris Boucher because of their thin frame, their ability to get up and down the court very quickly and block shots, rim run the dunks, and shoot threes. Uh, I, I guarantee you a lot of people are going to make those connections. Isaac Johnson will be a 21-year-old freshman. Uh, granted, he's been away from you know rigorous training for basketball for the last year and a half or so. He, I think he got back to Utah um, middle of or end of 2020. So he's, he's had a, a couple months at home working out and stuff, but you know, we'll see what kind of condition he's in once he gets here in June. But the expectation for Oregon is, is that they're going to, they're going to be huge next year. They're going to have four guys that are six eleven. Uh, they'll have two more for sure. And Luke were and um, Chandler Lawson that are six, eight Jonathan Lawson, I believe is almost six, eight. He's six, seven. Uh, so they, they are, they are going to be a big team again and they will have a lot of big guys and, a lot of big guys that can do a bunch of different things. I think Frank Kepnog, who Altman said that post game after USC, he made a mistake. He should have played him more. The reason he didn't was because he had very little experience against playing uh, versus zone. And he was worried about how he would handle it. But obviously uh, that was a mistake in, in, by Altman. And he admitted to that. I mean, he copped to it quickly and himself said he should have played him more. Um, but Frank is going to be kind of like that u- uber athletic big guy. That's high energy uh, rebounder can, can block some shots and throw dunks down and follow Dante will be uh, a really good low post defender, a really good uh, back to the basket guy who is maybe not as athletic as Frank Kepnog, but is more, more refined and more polished. Uh, he'll be coming off his torn ACL, which he, you know, think about Dante. People are sleeping on him because he's not played. And since January or since February, or excuse me, since December, and, you know, Kepnock has looked good in very short spurts. But the thing about Infale Dante is remember this. Um, he averaged – let me pull up the, the, the stats here for a second. 
He averaged 8.2 points per game, 5.8 rebounds, and 1.2 blocks before he got hurt. He was shooting 65.6% from the field. And people are thinking, oh, well, those are those are good numbers, maybe not elite, okay? But in the two games before he got hurt, he went for 22 points and five rebounds. And then against Washington, he had 12 points, 10 rebounds, and two block shots. He had turned the corner and was playing the way everyone was expecting him to play when he showed up the year before as a five-star recruit. And that's why Dana Altman was so sick at the at, at, when the injury happened and was so, you know, this so sad and, and was so down because he knew Dante had started that to turn that corner and was really had figured things out. 22 and 5, 12, 10, and 2 in back-to-back games before he got hurt. Uh, against San Francisco midway through that first half. And he played just 10 minutes. He actually played a couple of minutes on the torn ACL and then came off. Um, so don't sleep on and follow Dante. I know everyone's high on Frank Kipnog uh, and understandably so, but Dante is going to be, that's going to be a, a heck of a battle this off season to see who wins. And the, the positive is, is that both guys will push each other and Oregon should come out knowing that they've got two really good low post options maybe a third even with Isaac Johnson. Now, who do they go and target in the portal? I mean, I think it's obvious, Eric, like they need a guard, right? Like, yeah. Like Duarte was your best defender. Um, he was an all American. He was an all conference defensive player. He was an honorable mention defensive player the year before that you need to go out and need to find someone that can score, but also can defend. And the thing about this year in the portal is, there are a ton of options. Oregon, Oregon is going to be like they're going to they're going to build a list. They've already got one, but they're going to when they're building this list of guys that they're going to go at. They're going to the first round of things. They're going to look at this and go, "We got to pare this down. We, we can't go after <laughs> fifty guys. Like, like how do we even go? You know, get this down further." Um, a couple of names of note to keep your eyes on here. There's I've got over fifteen. To track, I've posted about six or seven of them on the site right now, but a couple ones that make a ton of sense. Um, Neomari Burnett, a former five-star combo guard from from Prolific Prep in Northern California, he played this year at Texas Tech as a freshman. Six foot six, can play point, can play shooting guard, can play small forward. He's not an elite shooter, but he is a terrific defender. He can play on or off the ball and is a really good slasher. Ideally, I think you want someone that can shoot threes, but Burnett might be the best like fit from a long-term perspective of he fits your needs to some degree in the 2021-2022 season, but he also fits what you have on the roster currently beyond that. Um, another player with a familiar last name is Jacob Young, younger brother of Joseph Young, the Oregon Pac-12 player of the year. Uh, Jacob started his career at Texas, played two years there under Shaka Smart, then transferred to Rutgers, uh, redshirted, played, which was the year that he he spent one year with Eugene Amarui, but he didn't play that season. Um, and then the last two years for Rutgers, he has been a starter and was a 14-point-per-game player this year, made the NCAA tournament, prolific scorer, really good defender, um, Maybe not the most efficient player, but that was also similar to what Joseph Young was. You know, very erratic isn't the best word, but can play really fast. 
and sometimes that's a positive and, and sometimes that's a negative. Uh, we'll see if it, where he fits in the mix here. Um, Fats Russell is a point guard from Rhode Island that will be a grad transfer. Averaged 18 points uh, as a junior last season, 14 points this year. Averaged 14 points uh, as a sophomore. Has also averaged around four assists per game all three of those years. Very good defender, but is a tad small. But because Oregon has Richardson at six foot five, they can get away with that. Russell could play the point. Richardson on defense. Richardson can guard the twos. Uh, they can share the point guard duties. He's a terrific three point shooter. He's got Oregon in his top group of schools there. Um, another name to, to keep an eye on from a grad transfer perspective. Marquette senior guard, Kobe McEwen. Um, Oregon was a finalist when he was coming out of Utah State a couple years ago. He started the last two years for the Marquette Golden Eagles. He has since opened up uh, into the transfer portal after Marquette fired their head coach. And he doesn't want to, you know, doesn't want to play for a new coach at Marquette. So he's going to look around. And then I think last but not least here, um, probably the, the number one transfer target for everybody in the country, not just Oregon is Kellen Grady, six foot five from Dayton. You know, he averaged 17 points all four years at Davidson. He's using the extra year. The NCAA is giving to play a fifth year of college basketball, all a 10 selection, all four years at Dayton. Uh, this is, he can defend, he can shoot threes, he can pass, he can rebound. Um, one of the best transfer mark, you know, guys in the country. And I'll say this, you know, there's more guys on the list and I've got other guys that are, you know, been contacted by Oregon guys that are hoping to get contacted by Oregon. I'll put a full list together here of that on DuckTerritory.com for our subscribers, but Oregon has turned into a destination job or a destination um, landing spot for transfers. I fully expect that they're going to sign one or two guys in this class. And if some players transfer out, I, I fully expect Oregon to try and use as many scholarships as they can on transfer targets, because there are so many in the portal that are really good. It just doesn't make sense for you to hold a scholarship when there's so many good players out there and available right now. Ideally though, Eric, I, I think this team needs to find a shooter. Um, Anything beyond that just feels like gravy, right? Yeah, I was thinking maybe somebody to cover up. Maybe like a shot blocker. If you're, I was, if, uh, well, I was going to say maybe someone like a really good perimeter defender, and maybe that maybe maybe the key is just a three and D three and D guy. You know, if it's not a guy like Grady who's the full maybe the whole the whole package, maybe it's right. somebody who can kind of cover up some of what you're losing with Duarte three point shooting. You're losing the versatility defensively to be an all conference caliber guy. Not that Oregon's going to be bad on the perimeter defensively. Um, but it's it, assuming Figueroa probably goes pro. I don't know. You've watched them a little more than me. I would say Figueroa and Duarte are probably your two most complete d defensive guards yeah. and perimeter players in the team. Probably like to have somebody come, you know, at at, an, at a piece there if you can. Again, maybe that's just maybe that is part of that gravy you're talking about. Um, but like, yeah, you need somebody on the perimeter pretty clearly. And again, it's kind of comical because the talk right now I've seen is is like, you know, Oregon needs to get bigger. It's like, well, they're going to be huge next year. <laughs> they actually need to find some players to make. You know, they need to find shot makers more than likely, depending on how all this sorts out. And it will be interesting to see how that comes together. And it'll be interesting to see how both Richardson and Williams, assuming that those two both return and, and you don't see Figueroa decide to come back, 
it'll be interesting to see how those two carry on a larger perimeter scoring role. I think Richardson certainly showed towards the end of the season when he got healthy, the caliber of score he was did not play his best game in the sweet 16, but you think about the shots, the difficult shots he made against Iowa and the difficult shots he made and wins down the stretch of the regular season. And I just think you have to be really excited about what a senior season, or I guess a pseudo junior season, depending on how you want to count it could be for Will Richardson next season. Cause I think he's somebody who could be a, you know, an all conference caliber guy and, and maybe elevate himself to being, looked at similar to, to a Chris Duarte. I don't know if he's going to be first round, but certainly somebody who could have a shot to be drafted in the 2022 NBA draft. I, I think the feeling is, is that Richardson and Eric Williams are going to be all conference caliber guys. And Richardson in particular has a good chance to be, I think, Oregon's third straight All-American and also a Pac-12 player of the year candidate. Um, it's going to take a jump, but he has learned a lot playing under Peyton Pritchard and then playing with Chris Duarte. This will be his fourth year in the program, third year as a starter. That's the expectation from within the program is that Duarte, or that Richardson becomes you know the next elite Oregon senior guard. And having your two best players being Richardson, a four-year player, and Eric Williams will be a – fifth-year senior, third year in the Oregon program, you know that your player, you know, you're going to be led by two veterans, guys that have played for Oregon, guys that know the system, you know, guys that know the offseason rigors of training and whatnot. So Oregon, you know, Oregon's still set up for success. I think, I still think they'll probably be a top three team in the conference next year, probably in my opinion right now, you know, a little uneducated here, but probably the favorite to win it all again uh, the regular season. UCLA probably being the biggest challenger to that, considering they bring back a lot of guys from this year's team as well. I think all five of their starters are back, um, unless one of them or a couple of them go pro. Uh, but Oregon, Oregon will be loaded next season. And I, I think you need to find a guard. You hope the transfers out of the program are minimal. Um, you, you hope it's not you know three or four. If 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 it's going to happen, you want one or two. I think Nate Biddle is going to be a guy that could you know potentially be a, a dark horse for freshman of the year in the conference. Jo- don't sleep on Jonathan Lawson. This is a guy that's won three state titles for three different schools. And in normal instances, you look at that and you go, "Wow, that that might be concerned." You know, three different high schools in four seasons. Why is he moving around a bunch? Well, the first year. He was at East High School, which was his school he was supposed to be at. And then his sophomore and junior year, he played for his dad at Woodendale High School. Um, his dad got a job following his freshman year, so he went and played for his dad. That's understandable. And then this season, he played at his third different high school because Woodendale, the, the county that they were in, in Tennessee, opted out of all sports. And he wanted to play, so he changed schools again. You know, his school chose not to play sports and he wanted to play. So he had to, he had to change school, you know, schools. So that's how he got to three different schools in four years. But he's won a state title in three. And the fourth year that he didn't win, it's because the state tournament got canceled and they were the number one seed. So Oregon's adding you know, an insanely decorated, you know, freshman in Jonathan Lawson. So don't sleep on him either. Um, I, I, I think this team is loaded for another run. It's in an, just how good does 
does this team become will depend upon the transfer market. Really? Like if Oregon hits gold and adds a couple pieces to this puzzle from the, from the transfer portal, like a Kellen Grady, and maybe they find another wing defender, or maybe they find like a six, nine power forward who can block shots. Maybe not a shooter, but you know, really tough rebounder, really tough defender and, and can block shots. You know, I think this team is is back to where we thought they were, you know, a week ago. Where hey, right matchups, they're a Final Four team. They're they're that good. Um, expectations shouldn't change for this program. And I think the thing that's most impressive about Altman now is is he's he's established a culture and an established now uh, a cycle where a, in his program he's always going to have a couple older veteran players now that are legit dudes on this roster to carry the team. And it's gotten finally to a place where unless they sign like a top five player in the country, every newcomer that comes into the program doesn't have to be your number one or your number two go-to guy. And that's how you win games. That's how you win conference championships. That's how you make runs to the sweet 16 four times in six years is not having to rely upon freshmen and newcomers to be your number one or your number two option. Let's shift gears to the women. Now Um, they also played Sunday afternoon and they also saw their season come to a close. They lost 60 to 42 to the two seed Louisville Cardinal out of the ACC. And Eric, we both watched this game at length. You've covered this team at length. Um, I, I've watched a lot of their games, but this is the one where I see Oregon lost by 18, but I'm like, that score is nowhere close to indicative of how this game played out or how close Oregon was to pulling off this upset. And if it, I don't want to make excuses, but if it wasn't for some shoddy officiating and Oregon literally running out of players because of injury, I kind of think Oregon was the better team. Yeah, I, I I did too, actually. And I just I just would have loved to have seen these teams play healthy. And I even mean healthy without Dehina Pow Pow. Like I would have loved to just see this game played for 40 minutes with the players that were supposed to be available. Um, and I don't want to say Oregon wins this game 10 times out of 10 if Maddie Shear, who was your point guard and Niara Sabali, who's your leading scorer are available for all, all four quarters. But like, I don't think it's by mistake that it's a two point game when Maddie Shear leaves the court with an ankle injury. She does not return. Dana Evans, Louisville star player has not scored is over five from the field has nothing going offensively. And the moment Maddie Shear, who's a very accomplished defensive player leaves the court, Dana Evans goes off and she scores 29 points over the last three quarters. Louisville outscores Oregon by a ton in the second quarter. They outscore them 19 to six in the second, just dominate that quarter. And it kind of feels like the game's over, but Oregon to their credit battles and battles and battles. And I think the loss of sheer there, like let's just, let me stay on that for a second. I I think no one's going to say she is your most, like she's not your best player. Um, She's probably not even one of your best five players. If I'm honest, of who's available, I think she's, you know, Sydney Parrish and, Taylor Chavez probably both have arguments to be just better overall players. But what Maddie Shear was, was your primary ball handler. And Oregon just didn't have anyone else on the roster who does that. And she's also your best perimeter defender. 
And in a game that has one of the more accomplished offensive guards in the country, Dana Evans, she was really valuable. And in a game against a team that likes to try to force you into making mistakes and turning the ball over, she was really valuable. And to lose her with like 30 seconds left in the first quarter was just a gut punch. Because then you're going, who, like, who is even left at this point to run points? It, it's Taylor Mikesell and Ch- Taylor Chavez. Your, your point guard's hurt. Your backup point guard's hurt. Your backup's backup point guard is also playing hurt. <laughs> when you, and you have Jazz Shelley, who, by the way, played five minutes to the end of this game, who was not supposed to be available, who's probably like your fourth ball handler. Um, and so they have nobody left. And again, you think everything's over after a terrible second quarter, and yet they rally, and Aaron Boley pulls down a rebound with Oregon trailing by eight with about 30 seconds left in the third quarter, going down with a chance to make it a two-score game. And, of course, because Oregon just can't have good luck, Niara Sobley lands on Aaron Boley's foot coming down for the reason rebound. I mean, just total happenstance. I mean, there's really almost no reason that that happens besides the fact that Sobley takes off and tries to grab a rebound, and Boley's foot just happens to be there. And the result is Oregon, who, by the way, Sobley had 10 points in that third quarter. Oregon scored 19 in that quarter. Um, 10 of them came from Sobley. She really started to get it going, and I don't think Louisville had any answer for her. Um, they have it to eight, and who knows? If, she, if they come down and score there, it's a six-point game with a full quarter to go. And I'm not saying Oregon wins that game, but at least gets interesting. Um, but she gets hurt. She can't return to the game. It's a pretty bad-looking sprain. I, I, you know, if the season was still ongoing, I'm imagining she's probably missing a month or so of the season. Um, it's not, they go to the off season. It'll slow her down her, you know, off season, maybe uh, a little bit, but like that one, that one really hurt. And from there, you know, to their credit again, like they, they scored the first four points of the, of the fourth quarter and are up, you know, now it's a six point game with about eight to go. And similar to the men's team, they had a couple of opportunities to cut it to four, to cut it to three. Cinema Prince missed a layup. Um, that would have cut it to four points with about seven to go. They can't. And Louisville, to their credit, goes on a big run. They outscore the Ducks from there um, by 14 points. They win by 18. It looks like a blowout. If you just didn't watch the game, you look at it and go, oh, Oregon was overmatched. Well, that's, you know, if, again, if you're kind of a casual fan who hasn't been watching much this season and you've just kind of been looking at the box scores, you go, oh, there they are again. They played a better team. They couldn't win. This is the Arizona-UCLA kind of story all over again where they play the more athletic, more talented team with better guards and they get blown out. I don't think that's really, like you said, indicative of what happened, but it is the story of the game is, is the two injuries to two of your, arguably your two most valuable players for this game. I mean, one your, player for Louisville scored half their points. Yeah. And that player, like I said, didn't score a single point when Maddie sure was on her. When Maddie sure was in the game, Dana Evans didn't score. And the reality is, and we knew that everything, everybody knew this going in that like, Maddie Shear is a really good defensive player. Dina Papo is a very good defensive guard. Those are your two best defensive guards. Your third best defensive guard is probably Taylor Chavez, but she's dealing with an injury herself. And I don't want to be too critical, but Taylor Mike still is a bad defensive player. And Taylor Mike still ended up guarding Dana Evans for a lot of that game. And again, I don't want to point in t- fingers entirely, but that's just a tough matchup for Taylor Mike still. Mike still is a shooter. You want to hide her on like the other team's worst offensive guard. Instead, she's having to basically guard the best guard offensive scorer in the country. Um, I guess besides Paige Beckers from Connecticut, but like or, or Caitlin Clark at Iowa, two two freshmen. But like Evans is an, a super talented scorer, and to try to ask Kayla Mikesell to guard her and then on the opposite side run point is just a lot for her, especially when her role is basically should be the Aaron Boley role of the last couple of years with Sabrina Inescu, where she's just sitting in the corner waiting to shoot threes and then. Again, you're kind of hiding her on 
maybe like the other team's third best perimeter player. So that was just a that was just a brutal loss to have those players go down. And again, I think credit to the team for battling and fighting. Aaron Bully, fourteen. She went out. Left. She went out. You know, with anything with nothing left in the tank in her career. Fourteen yeah. points, eleven rebounds. She made a couple threes. She had four offensive rebounds. I mean, she did everything she could in her final game. Yeah, a lot of credit to Aaron for how she battled in that one. Didn't shoot the ball well, and the team for you know. That's another part of this is they shoot 18 for 56 from the field and two for 18 from three. Right. Um, she, Aaron Bolio was the only one to make a three-pointer. Yeah. And then, Which I, I think is like fitting. Like if if you're, you're going to play bad and, and you're going to lose the game, at least Bolio is the one that made your threes. And I think the other part is uh, you mentioned the officiating. It, it wasn't great. Um, the fact that there were only 11 total free throws shot in this game was significant. And I, I think that there were probably at least three to five made baskets from Prince or Sabali or Bo- and even Bully, where they made it through contact where they easily could have been and ones that just weren't whistled. Yeah. And I think that was the case in the men's game as well, but um, not to t- too much on the, on the officiating. It wasn't great. Oregon didn't lose the game because of the officiating. If Oregon shot better and if they were healthy, I think this game might go the other way. And we're probably talking here about an elite eight matchup with Stanford and talking about, hey, gosh, this is a team Oregon might match up pretty well against considering their first two meetings with them were, were pretty close games. But alas, that does not happen. Oregon's season ends. And it's, um, as Kelly Graves said to conclude his press conference on a question I asked, like, this season ends up being a pretty positive one in terms of how you look at it. You know, this is a team that really battled had a lot of ups and downs, had pauses from COVID, had to deal with a ton of injuries. I mean, you look at your, you look at the team's probably five best players. Aaron Bowley was the only one that didn't miss time with an injury. Niara Sabali, Sedona Prince, um, Taylor Chavez, and Tahina Pau-Pau all missed significant time due to injury. Um, and this was a year where they battled and still made a Sweet 16 run. And we're probably a little bit better injury luck in the Sweet 16 game from maybe, maybe, going to the Elite Eight and having a chance to play Stanford again. Um, I mean, that that's pretty dang impressive, all things considered. And a ton of credit to the young players as well. Um, by the end of the season, basically only Sheer and, and Parrish were playing significant minutes. minutes. But I, I think those that experience in the NCAA tournament, especially I think for, for Maddie Sheer, who will obviously return next year and figures to be a prominent player, for her to play 38 minutes in a second-round win where she's the primary point guard, that's going to pay dividends. And I know Matt, Sydney Parrish and Angela Duglish didn't score well or shoot well in this tournament, but just the minutes they get, those are going to be beneficial going forward. And this remains an uber young team. Um, they lose Aaron Boley. They lose Lydia Giomi. They're two players who've been catalysts in this program's rise. You know, obviously they're not the Sabrina, Satu, Ruthie. And those three players were at the very, very core of all of this, along with Maite Cazorla, I'd say. But Bully and, and, and Jomi have been big parts of this. And, and, you know, I think that's, I think that one kind of sa- sad part and sour part you take away from this, this season is those two players exiting the program. Both players will not be back. Bully's already said that um, publicly and reiterated it again in the post game on Sunday evening. Um, Jomi hasn't said anything, but from everything I've heard, she's got her degree. She's very, very, um, I think she's got a might have already got her graduate degree at this point. I mean, she's she's, she's a very she's accomplished a fifth year student. senior. Does she really she's, want to be in college for six years? Like, and this is also like the other thing of like, 
what is she really getting from more college basketball on a team right. where she might not even play very much next year. It was pretty clear by the end of the season, she was like your third or fourth best post players. So like, I think those two are clearly gone. Um, and if we're talking about the future here, there's a lot to build around. And Kelly Graves was very optimistic about, you know, he thought this team showed a championship, you know, heart championship competition, um, a team that, that has that caliber. Um, and it's a very, very young team. Like, shoot, you look at the, the girls that played the most minutes in this game outside of bully, they're all going to be back. And for the most part, they're all underclassmen this year. And depending on how the NCAA is going to handle, you know, their eligibility, uh, what class they are for 21 and 22, they could be considered freshmen and sophomores again next season. So this is a really young, exciting group. They do add a couple of players. Um, Taylor Bigby is a five-star guard from Las Vegas. She's long and, and lanky at six foot one. Honestly, kind of a type of player the Ducks just don't usually have. I can't think of the last player that really fits that mold. Like sure, Aaron Bully and Sydney Parrish are similar heights and um, are kind of perimeter-oriented players, but neither of them are even half the athlete that Taylor Bigby is. And Bigby's a tremendous defensive player. I think she steps on campus and along with Shear is probably your best defensive player, um, at least from the perimeter. So that's going to be a really, I think, welcome addition. And then it'll be interesting to see how Filipina Che, who's a six foot eight center from Canada, who's a real under the radar kind of last minute find from Kelly Graves and his staff player who hasn't been playing the sport very long, but is super athletic, can dunk, can, can score the basketball with decent range, not to three point line, but can shoot a little bit of face up. Um, her, her role probably isn't going to be massive coming, you know, starting right away, just because you think about Sabali and Prince both being there. It's a really established front court, but certainly a player that is another body to throw out there against some bigger teams. And um, I think you just have to, and from there, we should say from there, they could add another transfer. They're done. I know from a prep recruiting, maybe they go try to find another Juco. They did last year with Ariel Wilson. It was kind of unexpected. Um, they do have a little bit of scholarship room if they want to get creative, but my, my guess is that this roster looks a lot like the one we saw last year. You swap out Bully, you swap out Giomi, you add Bigby, you add Che, and that's kind of your core. And then it becomes a matter of kind of figuring out what this rotation looks like because the reality is they played the NCAA tournament without Pow Pow. Um, and it, they honestly they had kind of, incredible success. Yeah. And so you, and then you insert who I think is pretty undoubtedly your best guard rebat, you know, you throw her back into the mix here and you kind of figure out what that looks like. And it's just going to be really, I think this season, it never really felt like it all came together with when you had all your players available, it's going to be very interesting to see going into this off season, going into the 2021, 22 season, what Kelly Graves decides to do in terms of mixing and matching on this roster. There are a lot of interesting pieces. I think you saw highs and lows from basically all of your young players. Now it's a matter of maximizing that, getting the most out of it, finding the best rotations. If you have, you know, and, and finally having a true off season to kind of put this all together. I think that part gets lost. This was a year where you had Oregon had a ton of heavy lifting to do in terms of finding out who its best players are and what roles. And there were a lot of obstacles that stopped them from doing that. The feeling right now is that those obstacles are going away now with the COVID protocols, I think becoming lessened and lessened by the time a season were to start. So I think there's a lot of reason, reason for optimism. I think there's a reason to expect that this team is going to be competing once again for a conference championship. I also think Stanford, Oregon state, and probably UCLA will all be right in there. Arizona loses basically all of its, top talent so they're going to be maybe a step back teams like usc um and even colorado i think figure to kind of take a step up and maybe compete washington state's another team to know but like i think oregon's going to be firmly in the conference 
chart, you know, conference championship race again next year. And really if, if that one, two punch from Prince and Sabalu, which we started to see develop at the end of the year, if that can take another step, that's going to be a really tough matchup in the Pac-12 for anybody. I think the path to success for Oregon's women's team in 21, 2022 is going to be a style of play that we just are not, are not accustomed to have seen under Kelly Graves as the head coach at the women. Tell me if I'm wrong here, Eric, but I, I think the way Oregon is a final four team in 21, 22 is in the half court style offense where Oregon just wants to pound the ball every possession into the low post go high-low with Sedona Prince and Narius Obley. And those are their two best players in my eyes. And they found something in the tournament where they were forced to play big and play both their two tallest players together and run things through them because of injuries elsewhere, because of players, other players maybe not playing at, at full you know, optimal levels. And they found something that I, I think – will become a huge deterrent for everybody else that they play is there aren't, there aren't a lot of teams that have Oregon size. And like you mentioned, Aaron Bowley's gone and Lydia Giomi are gone, but Oregon is still going to be huge. And their two best and tallest players. Sedona Prince and Sobley will be back. I, I think it's going to be a half court game and pound the ball inside to your two post players and just let them go to work. Yeah, and the other positive – well, a couple of thoughts here. First off, I think this is the style that Kelly Graves kind of always envisioned playing this season, but Sedona got hurt really early. And then Niara got hurt, and the ability to play both of them enough minutes to really play them on the court together was kind of limited aside from about a four-game stretch in January, which, by the way, I think they won three out of four games, but the loss they took was to Arizona in really embarrassing fashion. And I think after that game, they kind of went – okay, well, let's try to go back to, to what we were doing before. Maybe that'll work. And because Pow Pow was hurt, they literally, and because Shelly was hurt, and because Chavez was hurt, they literally just didn't have the bodies in practice to, to really even play enough guards. So they started playing the two bigs together, and that worked out. And so I think this is kind of always, I mean, Kelly Graves going into the season really did talk about this season was going to be different, like Matt's saying. And they were going – this upcoming, this past season, they were talking about they wanted to get the ball to, you know, to, to have Prince kind of initiate offense at the elbow, you know, have Sabali at the block and just kind of have them go high-low. And now you kind of saw that inverted a little bit with Sabali initiating up top, Prince down low. Both options worked pretty well. Um, that's going to be really fun to watch. And I, I think the, inter- the, thing, the thing that's going to be kind of interesting to see is how they build around it. I think Pow Pow is pretty clearly one of your starters – who starts and the Aaron Boley spot, is that going to be as simple as saying Sydney Parrish because they're the same size, sort of similar skill sets. And she was a kind of a microwave scorer this year. Didn't get hot in the tournament. Unfortunately, as a player, I was kind of always hoping that maybe she would. I think her only basket, at least in the sweet 16 game came right at the end, but can she take that step? Um, what about Taylor Mike Taylor Chavez, Maddie Shear, and jazz Shelley at the two guard? Um, you've got some, some real competition there. Mike so was the starter this last year. I would say it was a pretty up-and-down season. I think that's not really a secret. She had some really great games where she really shot it well. She had some games where she shot it really poorly, like this last one where she was one for nine from the field and missed all five three-point shots. She's not a great defensive player. Um, what do they, how, do they, how do they kind of 
piecemeal that deal. I, I mean, to me, I'd like to have Mike's on the court, assuming she can shoot it, because she's a great. She's got a potential to stretch the court for you. But if she's not making them, it's sort of a liability. And I think you have other options to look at. So that position battle is going to be interesting. And it's, I, I you know, I think in, in my head right now, and I, I post this on the site, I, I probably lean towards a lineup of something like Pow Pow at point, Mike Sill at two, Parish at three, and then Sabali and Prince at the four and the five. And that's kind of where you start discussions. But there's certainly two spots that I think are pretty wide open. And there's no reason that the Sedona or sorry, the Sydney Parish spot can't also be another little shorter player, you know, a 5'11, a 5'10 player. When they could go Mike Sell because she can shoot it and then have Maddie Shear be a starter out there just because she's your best perimeter defender and, and has proven to be a pretty good distributor. And now you have kind of two pseudo point guards out there together. I think there's just some fun ways to think about how this team can play. And then, and then again, I think Taylor Bigby, I don't know if she starts right away because offensively I think she's got a little ways to go. But defensively, she's going to be impactful right away. Um, long, athletic, really disruptive defensively, can get it in the passing lanes, probably going to be a candidate to be an all-conference defensive player at some point during her career. Um, that's going to be an interesting addition, how she fits into it too. But th- I, I think this team has a lot of different ways to kind of skin a cat next year, and it's going to be very interesting to see. And by the way, what a weird term that is, and why did I use it? To skin a cat. I don't even know who's thinking about all these different ways to do it. That seems like a poor use of your time. But um, <laughs> I, said, I, I said that, and I thought, that's just a weird choice of words. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but they were mine. And, uh, but I just think that this, this team has a lot of versatility, a lot of different ways to do it. And, and you mentioned kind of playing half court. I think they can play a little four court too. I mean, Prince is not fast, but you watch, you watch Niara Sable get up and down the court. She can really run for a player her size. What do you feel like is the expectation for this team next year right now? Like looking at this, I know it's still a long ways away, um, but and then some things could change. But like for the men, I think it's hey, the expectation for for the Oregon men is to win the league and to make the Sweet Sixteen. You know, to be a second week team in the tournament. Is that the same expectation that can be held for this women's team? Uh, Kelly Grave wants to go further. He, he in the tournament, he said that pretty clearly. Well, sure. I mean, I think Oregon uh, wants to go further too. But like, but I, 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 I mean, I, but I think he's setting the expectation of like next year's team should go further. Um, I think winning the conference is going to be, of course, that's a hope and a dream. But if that that shouldn't be your baseline expectation with Stanford returning a lot of what they've got going and obviously being at this point in the tournament, probably the, the favorite to win it all. Um, that's tough to expect them to win the conference. Stanford's taking its game up a level and Oregon's going to have to really compete to be in the, you know, I think to win the conference next year. But I, I think similar kind of thing where I think you go, okay, if you finish second, third or fourth in the pack 12, you're going to get a good seed. And if you get a good seed and you, have this type of a matchup with these two bigs there's no reason to think they can't go elite eight final four next year um i think you probably set the baseline similar to what you just said of like you try to win the conference you try to make the sweet 16 and that's probably where you set it but i i, I got the feeling from what kelly graves said afterwards of like this team wants to go further expects to go further thinks that they can make a run next year and i don't necessarily think he's wrong i, I do think there are still some some things that they have to sort out. This is a team that 
was expected to be a tremendous three-point shooting team, and straight up they weren't very good for most of the season. Um, this is a team that defensively had some string of games where they were really good and then some string games where they were really bad. Um, and I even think, like, even with the two-big lineup, they at times weren't very good rebounding. Um, Nara Sabli is a really good rebounder. She averaged about eight this year. Sedona Prince is not, at least didn't show to be very good. And she averaged about four. So like th- those would be some areas that I kind of think of that they need to shore up is, is rebounding three point shooting and then defense. But um, I, I, I think this team has the potential to be really, really good again next season and probably should be better. If they aren't better, it's probably going to be a disappointment if they make it to the second round of the tournament and get ousted unless it's a year where it's just a huge upset and they were like a two seed in which case they've probably accomplished enough where you go. That was a pretty good season. But like, I, I think this group wants to go further. And I think like, frankly, I think they should go further than the sweet 16. Obviously we're look, you don't know what the matchups are and everything, but like, I just think on paper, this team has a lot of promise and returns so much that there should be a lot of optimism heading into this off season. And the other part of it is I'm not going to, like Matt, I'm not going to theorize who might transfer out. And unlike Matt, I'm not going to fully theorize who might transfer in because I don't know how active Oregon's going to be on the transfer market this year. But I wouldn't be surprised to see them go out and find another accomplished player, probably somebody who can stretch the court and shoot it. Um, at the same time, I go, they've got a lot of players back who in past seasons have looked capable of doing that. And I think that's one of the things, and I know we want to wrap this up because we're going over an hour here, but like, you just look at the you know the, the type of three point shooters Oregon was supposed to have on this team this last year and who's back like, I mean, Mike So was like a forty percent three point shooter. She shot thirty three. Uh, Taylor Chavez was leading the conference last year. She almost shot fifty percent. She shot thirty three. Jazz Shelley was second to Chavez in the conference at last year, like forty six percent. She shot thirty percent this year. Um, Sydney Parrish was brought in as supposedly the best three point shooter recruit in the country, she shot 33%. Tina Palpo was 39 and a half. She was over 40 most of the season. Um, that dropped because of her last couple of games. But like, this is a team that really has, I think, on paper, some three-point shooters and, and has a potential to be good there. Um, so maybe you don't even really look to go to the transfer market just because you feel good enough with what you have and you figure that these numbers are going to return to the mean in 21-22. We're going to have a ton more coverage on... Uh, DuckTerritory.com for both the men and the women as they cross over from in-season coverage to now off-season coverage. It's going to be interesting to see if any players choose to leave the program, whether it's going pro or transferring out. It's going to be interesting to see the chess moves that each coaching staff makes. I think it's very clear that that Oregon has probably – the two best coaches in program history for both of them uh, yeah. and in the women leading their programs right now and Dana Altman and Kelly Graves, what kind of chess moves do they make uh, this off season to refine and, and enhance this roster in these programs uh, for next season? We'll cover it all on DuckTerritory.com. This is not going to be the end of our coverage of the men or the women's teams, even though their seasons have come to a close, there's still a lot of storylines to watch. So Keep your eyes out on that on DuckTerritory.com. And until then, thank you for listening to the Autzen Audibles podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Okay, picture this. 
It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.